Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. sober, but man, they're just like, I'll probably be sobbing. Um, when we came down through the lobby, I, uh, you know, I looked out, I, when I moved to Montana uh, in February of 1991, I knew one woman who lived in Helena, and I was dry as a bone. I had been hanging out around AA for two and a half years, doing only what I wanted, only at my convenience, which at that time consisted of a married man about every two weeks, and um, it was the same married man. It's not like I was <laughs> tramping around AA for fun. Um, you know, padding my expense account at my employer, ripping them off on uh, my timesheet, and pretty much going to work, you know, when I could get there, taking a lot of mental health days off of my job, and hanging out at home with my two-year-old daughter, um, you know, trying to believe that it was going to get better any minute. And we moved out here to Montana um, because this woman that I knew in Helena would give me a job, and there were cowboys and lumberjacks here, I thought. Um, <laughs> and so here we come. And, uh, and today, my life is, that lobby is full of people that I know, friends of mine. Some are acquaintances. Some are people that I know from service up at the area assembly or in my district or from going over to the Beartooth Conference or traveling around, from being active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have this amazing life today that I had no desire or wish to have. I mean, frankly, I wanted to be left alone. That's not too much trouble. Um, but here I am. And I can tell you that there's nothing special or wonderful about me. I uh, was just a sick and desperate alcoholic who walked into a little nest of enthusiasm over in Helena, saw a cute guy, kept coming back. Uh, <laughs> got a sponsor, got tricked into recovering, and, uh, and here I am. And, uh, but my job is like Dan's. I'm here to tell you what I was like, what happened to me, and what I am like today. And I am an alcoholic head to toe. And I didn't know that um, all my life, but I have been a weirdo for years. And I uh, grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in a family of four brothers and a sister from pretty normal parents. They're not alcoholic. They were people who worked full-time jobs and made the car payment and put the screens on, the windows in the spring and the storms up in the fall. And, you know, we'd shovel the senior citizen lady neighbor's walk in the wintertime and helped rake her leaves and pretty normal, responsible kinds of stuff. They were married my whole life. You know, my mother never once locked my dad out of the house, never ever saw her kissing a strange man in the front yard. Um, You know, nothing strange going on. Well, unless you're an alcoholic kid, growing up in that environment, it all seemed pretty weird. But uh, I mean, it was a pretty normal life. I uh, 
But I was, I was just not content. Um, I can't even tell you that I would do weird things like move the furniture around in my bedroom about once a week. My mom would say, where are you going? Oh, I'm going upstairs to rearrange my room. Didn't you just do that three days ago? Yes, I did. You know, I just kind of give them that look like you're such a moron. You know, <laughs> of course I'm rearranging my room or I read a lot of books or, you know, I just kind of hid out from the universe, chase the boys around my neighborhood playing kick the can with this poor guy and, you know, I'd get him cornered up against the house and, why won't you kiss me? Um, you know, please. Is that a rhetorical question or uh, what? Um, and I, at some point in there, discovered some odd things. I had some friends and we started puffing uh, aerosol antiperspirant. We would spray it into a plastic bag and until we'd black out on the bed. Woo! That was a fun time. Um, things like that that my parents didn't teach me about. Um, <laughs> you know, things that make you grateful you have friends. Um, and one time, you know, finally, I guess when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I got drunk for the first time in my life. And it was fabulous. I was on a babysitting job. I didn't go to that babysitting job with the intention of um, getting drunk. It was a really good babysitting job. They were pretty well-to-do people. They had one little kid. They'd allow you to have friends over. I mean, all the big perks of a babysitting job they would go for. And we put their little girl to bed, my friend and I, and came back down. And out of the corner of my eye, coming through their dining room, saw a huge box of leftover liquor. It was right after the holidays. You know, those big, I don't know, half gallons or gallons, but to a 12-year-old, they were big fat bottles of booze and um, you know we went out to the kitchen and got some tumblers and we went and parked our butts in front of that box and we commenced drinking and we got very drunk and I uh, I guess to describe a little bit about how I felt about myself before I got drunk to give you an idea of uh, where I start out I'm flat chested and straight brown hair and kind of well completely a geek dork dip weed or whatever, however you, I mean, I just can't even describe how much of a loser I was. Uh, I was born in 1962, so it was, you know, the early 70s, I guess, and so polyester was very big. Um, a lot of static electricity, a lot of, uh, you just can't get that stuff to stay off your skin. Um, and my hair was full of static, and it was very fine and very thin, like a constant. You know, it just looks bad, I can't tell you. And um, So we start out there, and then we park our butt in front of this box and start drinking, and I have what, what I know today all alcoholics get, you know, the effect of alcohol. And I sat down there, and we... Uh, I mean, I just was transformed, and I don't know how much booze it took, and I, you know, I really don't care. We weren't measuring, um, but I just felt, uh, you know, fabulous, wonderful, goddess, you know, nice chest, you know, flowing hair, just wonderful. And uh, my friend also got very drunk, and she didn't seem to have the capacity for alcohol that I had because she started puking. And uh, I think she threw up in just about every room of those people's houses. And I, I mean, I am not on their bed, um, in their bathroom, and I was chasing around behind her. No, no, not their bed, please. <laughs> and uh, my parents were out that night at a card party. They played a lot of penny ante poker with their friends from the Sons of Norway. And uh, <laughs> told you a pretty normal Minnesota kind of stuff. Normal if you're from Minnesota. Um, 
And my mother came and picked up my friend and took her and dropped her off at her house, kind of propped her up on the door. She was so humiliated and embarrassed she couldn't possibly face that girl's mother and, and left me there um, to take care of the kid. Um, and those people came home and they found me passed out over the arm of their sofa. And uh, the he was waiting out in the car and she came in and there I was and uh, sent me out to the car. He gave me a ride home, paid me. I took the money and um, got home and my mother was just appalled. You took the money? Well... I did the job. I mean, <laughs> house didn't burn down, baby's safe, everything's okay, a little vomit, you know, what do you have? I think you're overreacting. And, uh, you know, I, and after that, I, I know the answer to my problem. And every babysitting job I went on, I got ripped. And, uh, it's, you know, I'm going to say I never babysat for those people again. But, uh, and it's not the only job, the only babysitting job I've lost because of my drinking. There were countless people that I only babysat for once. Uh, but, you know, to go from being a complete and total jerk, loser, you know, lower than whale dung to being fabulous, you know, for what am I going to, you know, the book talks about not having a choice. It's like, really, you know, these are my options. I can feel like a complete loser. I can feel wonderful. Better than all of you. Better than I ever knew it was possible to feel. Hmm, what's it going to be, you know? I'll be heading to the bowling alley parking lot trying to find someone to buy me liquor for, like, the rest of my life, okay? And that's just how it's going to be. And that is exactly, in fact, how it was. Um, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's because I have this opportunity to talk that I've been thinking about this so much lately. It's just how much I really love alcohol. And I love that about Alcoholics Anonymous is that we don't begrudge anyone their love of booze around here. I was in a meeting um, in Helena a while back, and somehow before the meeting we got talking about, this is an AA meeting, but um, smoking hash under glass. And the whole room just went, oh. Yeah. You, know, you are my people. Um, you understand that. You know, I work with people. I am a part of my life today, but I work with people who can't imagine me smoking a cigarette, who wouldn't consider getting behind the wheel of their car drunk. And when I tell them that I was a chronic drunk driver, they just kind of like, you know, Linda Blair, they freak out. They just can't even, you did? Well, you know, I have places to go and things to do, so what, I was going to stay home or call a cab? No, I have, you know, I'm self-reliant and independent and responsible. And they just kind of, okay, well, we're really glad that you go to AAAS. I, um, I am all over the place. I, uh, so, here I am, teenager, hanging out in Bowen Alley parking lots in South Minneapolis, trying to get people to buy me alcohol and other drugs every night of the week. Every night of the week, I spend up in my bedroom trying on just the right pair of pants, making sure there's not one single panty line, because you got to look really good in the Bowen Alley parking lot. Um, nothing ever happened, you know, to say nothing ever happened in the parking lot would be a lie because there were nights that I was able to get liquor and drugs and get whatever I could get my hands on and that's just kind of how it was and it all seemed so very normal. You know, I didn't drop out of school. I didn't, um, you know, what are a few babysitting jobs? They're not real jobs, really. I uh, didn't drop out of school, but I did get involved in remedial classes. I uh, would do things. I would meet my brother in the basement. I have a brother who's a year younger than me and we'd hook up in the basement before we'd had a block up the street to the school bus and we'd you know, smoke a little weed, because I'm a falling down, puking kind of a drunk, and um, you can't go to school in that condition. So we would smoke a little weed, and then we'd walk the block up to the bus stop and dive in the bushes while the rest of the nice little kids were waiting for the bus, and we'd smoke a few more, and then we'd maybe we'd get off 
you know, get off the school bus and head up the alley with our friends and smoke a little more. And maybe I'd make it back to school, but most of the time I didn't. And, you know, I was in a work release program, they called it. I only had to be there about three classes a day. But that was a little excessive. So I, um, <laughs> at 11.30 in the morning, I'd go to my job as a waitress in a Chinese restaurant. And I don't know what you look like when you smoke marijuana, but my eyes kind of go like that. And <laughs> so I had a nickname, Tokyo Test. That was pretty cute. Um, working in the Chinese restaurant. Um, and on the weekends, I would drink the way that I need to drink, the way that I love to drink, in mass quantities until I'm passed out and falling down and making a big scene. And at some point in there, I didn't have a really high um, tolerance for alcohol. I kind of started out, you know, so funny where my mind's, you know, where we all start out. Um, you know, where everybody starts out drinking with, uh, are they? Orange juice and vodka. Hello. Thank you. Um, but I would get sick. And so I determined on my own that it was some kind of a citrus allergy. So I um, you know, never went to a doctor, never had any diagnosis, just figured, oh, God, it must be the orange juice. And so I quit drinking screwdrivers and started mixing my vodka with Mountain Dew and puked that up. Hey, what a tasty little beverage. Um, until, well, and I was, that was coming back up, so I started drinking beer. And, but never ever did it occur to me that it was the alcohol, you know, that it was any kind of bizarre reaction. It just made me feel so good. I could do anything when I was drinking, and I didn't really ever do a whole lot other than go to the parking lot and try to get people to buy from me. But, you know, you feel like you can do anything. And when you're not drinking and you're so convinced, I'm so convinced that all of the world is looking at me and there's just nothing going to be right and I'm just going to be a disaster for my whole life, but when I take a few drinks, you know what, I can talk to people, kind of peel my back off the wall and, and be okay. And I didn't know that that is alcoholism. I thought that that was normal teenage, you know, sowing your wild oats kind of a thing, and, and I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, at some point in there, I met a guy. Um, you know, I wish the story was just more colorful, but it, everything seemed to happen in that parking lot. So I met this guy and I fell in love and uh, we kind of did this little dance of death for about nine years, I guess. Um, you know, just a brief little interlude. Um, breaking up and getting back together and breaking up and getting back together and I would beg him to marry me and he would never propose so I would get angry and break up and then I would find out, you know, probably from my brother, the drug dealer, um, that this guy had won a bunch of money at the track and was buying cocaine all around the neighborhood, and I would call him up in the middle of the night and say, Oh, I miss you so much. <laughs> you know, can I come over? And I'd go over and dive in, and, and we'd be at it again for about three months. And that just went on and on and on and on and on and on. And um, until I was about 24 years old, I guess, I uh, turned up pregnant, maybe 23. And uh, and things changed. You know, you're you're pregnant now, and you need to be a responsible person and not drink. And I think I found out I was pregnant when I was about a month into the deal, and stopped drinking, and stopped smoking, and stopped snorting, and stopped everything because I was going to be a good and responsible mother. And what happened to me is that it was the first time in my life since I'd started drinking that I went without alcohol or anything for any length of time. And what happened to me is the experience that's described in our book. I got weirder and weirder. I mean, I'm weird when I'm drinking. But when I'm not drinking, I just tip right over the edge. And, 
and I become impossible to live with. I uh, was absolutely miserable. I started, um, I tried, you know, just smoking a few cigarettes just to get me by, and the doctor ragged me out about that, so I couldn't even smoke. I mean, I, I just sat there feeling like I couldn't do anything. I was not a glowing mother to be. I was a big, fat, toxic waste dump. And I was, <laughs> well, getting bigger by the day. Living with two active, practicing people. And I felt like I just sat there on the couch living with these two characters. And they would drink and do their thing. Um, and I just kind of sat on the couch, you know, double-fisting peanut M&Ms and uh, getting bigger by the day. And finally, that baby was born. Thank God. Um, and she was healthy and she was fabulous. But the day that that girl was born, her father brought a bottle and a pack of Marlboros up to the hospital for me. And I can tell you that I just really needed a drink really bad. And... Uh, while the rest of my family was down at the nursery checking out the beautiful baby, I was in the smoking lounge alone, you know, pounding a bottle of wine and puffing away, and it was great. Um, they brought her into the hospital room that night. I guess I was supposed to feed her. I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, they just kind of they wheel in that little cart with the little baby. I am a, a, I have no remote clue what do you do with a baby. You know, I just had the baby because I didn't want to have an abortion on my conscience. That's kind of like how the baby got there, and uh, I peeled her, you know, looking at her, and then the nurse came in to take her back to the nursery, and they said, you know, you didn't feed her? What? I feed her? You know, two days later when they sent us home from the hospital, I remember loading her into my little pickup truck and, and thinking, these people are making a grievous mistake because, you know, they have no idea what they're, what they're doing. Uh, they, they can't possibly because if they knew... What was going on at our house, which was drug deals and parties and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the apartment that we lived in, one whole wall of it was corkboard, and we had this really scary carpet with a duct tape line. Uh, that was the dart line, and we would get loaded and throw darts at the dartboard. And if they missed the board, you know, they hit the cork wall, and it was all very efficient and wonderful and efficient. Um, well, for an anal retentive alcoholic, that's an important thing. Um, you know, and I just think about my life, and I mean, it just was so normal. It was one day at a time. It just went on and on and on like that, and now I have a little baby. And, um, you know, I didn't drink again immediately after, you know, the day that she was born, but I think it was about six weeks later, and we were at a barbecue, and everybody around me was drinking, and I was nursing at that time, and I just couldn't stand it now one more second. I was just watching those people tip them back on a hot, sunny day, and I thought, forget it, and she was weaned right there on the spot. You know, party's over. You'll be having a bottle from now on, you know, just, and so will I. And it'll be great. <laughs> you know, because mommy needs a drink, okay? I, uh, and within about three months after that, I uh, had left her father. What had happened is, when do I stop? That would be a good thing to know. Thank you. I, um. He also drank, and we would make these deals, and uh, I believe that I was the responsible parent of the two, but we would make these deals, okay, okay, I'd say, you know, we're going to a party, okay, everybody knows, okay, okay, we're going to the party, and we all know that you got drunk last time, and that I won't ever let you forget it, um, but now it's my turn, okay, okay, everybody's clear, my turn, I mean, you're going to be doing whatever you do, but I'll be drinking, and um we would get to the party, and he would beat me to the punch. You know, I would look over, I'd be tipping a few back, and he would be hammered in the corner. You know, he, was, he must have been very attractive to have stuck it out with me for nine years. Um, 
and I would just get livid, you know. And there was something in me, I guess I had enough control at that time, to cut it off for the night. But it didn't last very long. Within three months after she was born, I was moving home to my folks so that they could help take care of me and take care of her. And what they would do is they would watch her while I would go out on the weekends and drink. And they would watch her the next day when I would be hungover. And that went on for several months. And, you know, just what kills me today is that it all seems so normal. And how anyone ever got through to me, you know, and that I'm standing here sober and in the condition that I'm in is amazing to me. Because that was just like my life. You know, so there I live with my folks, you know, for several months. And one night I'm sitting in the kitchen feeding Shannon, and uh, she's in a high chair, and I'm spooning the oatmeal into her mouth. And my head said, you know, God, wouldn't it be nice to have a drink? And it was like a Tuesday night. And right behind that it said, you know what, but you can't possibly start drinking on a Tuesday night while you're living with your folks. Because when I start to drink, I wind up passed out on the couch. And if they see me in that condition on a Tuesday night, it's going to be a problem. So within a couple of months, I was getting my own apartment and moved my daughter and myself into this apartment and, uh, <clears throat> and just went out on the weekends and drank from time to time. I, uh, so what was I like in the bars? Well, I was a treat. I, um, I did a lot of, well, where do you even start? You know, it's like my biggest fear whenever I talk is that you're either going to find out how sick I really am or you're not going to be convinced I'm an alcoholic and I'm going to have to leave. And I can tell you that the latter has never, ever not once happened. Um, not once. People walk by and go, oh, yeah. Glad you're off the streets. I would do things. You know, I just loved everything about alcohol. I loved going to the liquor store. I love when you walk in and you know how the lights kind of reflect off of all of those bottles. I like the smell of the liquor store. I like sitting at my desk at work when I'm supposed to be working and we're having a party this weekend. I'm trying to calculate um, how many kegs I'm going to need. Mm, definitely more than two sixteens and an eight. Okay. But then you're going to also need cases of beer for after the kegs run out and the party's winding down and you're still going to be up and hooting and hollering. And uh, Okay. So two sixteens and eight, two cases. Probably some tequila for those other losers, so they'll leave my beer alone, and uh, and all of the rest, you know. And I just love all of it. I've got a picture in my photo album of my first keg, and it was two sixteenths and an eight in my friend's basement, and uh, it was wonderful. I uh, it just gives me goosebumps the whole thing. I uh, I did other things. I um, you know I dabbled, I guess, in, in drugs, and I only talk about it because the reason I guess today I understand that I did drugs is because they allowed me to drink mass mass quantities of alcohol. In and of myself, I can't hold a lot. I just can't. But if you feed me a little bit of speed or a little bit of LSD or some cocaine, ooh, baby, I am uh, here all night. I am there when you are tapping the first keg. I am there when you are tapping the third keg. I am there when we are saying good morning. You know, I am there. And I love to drink. I just can't get enough. And that is just how it is for me. And that is alcoholism. You know, when I take a drink, I just want more, and I will do whatever it is that I need to do to make that happen. I thought it was careful planning. I didn't know that it was a disease. I didn't know that I was screwed forever, um, that I was just going to walk around packing this little thing in me, and, uh, and I have it today. I have a, a mind that will get me back to a drink uh, unless I am right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, hanging out with the happy and joyous and active, enthusiastic, you know, crackhead. That, uh, I mean, 
I listen to all the laughter and the stuff, and I think, you know, what's not to like? But I remember what it was like being early sober and not really wanting to have to participate. Watching you people, you know, ugh, you make my skin crawl. Planned pregnancies and all kinds of weird stuff. But <laughs> yeah, I get ahead of myself. I, uh, so me and my daughter are, are living alone in this little apartment. And I'm doing weird things, you know, going into the bar. And I seem to have also this self-diagnosed hormonal imbalance that when I uh, go into the bar and take a couple of drinks, I leave with a strange man. And, uh, you know, I'm not exactly discriminating. Um, I'm not remotely discriminating. It's just kind of like, you know, it's 2 o'clock. This is what I do. I go to the bar. It's a Thursday night because I want to beat the weekend rush. I don't like crowds. I really like to dance. Um, so I go a little bit early to beat the cover charge that they start charging me, the $3 cover charge that they start in at 9 o'clock. So I get there a little bit before 9, drink 16-ounce beers for a buck. Pretty economical. Single mother on a budget. And, um, <laughs> Got to be thrifty. Um, <laughs> you start thinking about the logic that you apply to one's life. It's a little unnerving. Um, and then the music starts, you know, because you have your beers to your knees are a little bit loose. So you can get right out there at the beginning. You know how dances all start out slow. Um, there's nobody out there. Well, man, I was out there with my beer and my cigarette and uh, twirling around alone because I wasn't there, you know, looking for anybody. I wasn't one of those kind of women. Um, and I would just dance all night and I'd be a sweaty, ratted out mess. When the bar closed, it was, but you know, you feel so good. It's just like wonderful. And then the bar's shutting down, and uh, all of a sudden, there's some guy over here. Hey, who are you? Or, what are you? What are you doing right now? Nothing. Hey. Not that I was a trainer. Yeah, and it's not like this happened once or twice or it was an accident. It never seemed really premeditated, but it always seemed to happen, which led me to the theory of the hormonal imbalance, that I just had no control. It's insane. Um, and at some point, you know, it starts to dawn on you that you are a single mother, Teresa, and this probably isn't too cool, and you don't seem to be able to um, leave a bar alone. And when, the last time that I tried to do that, I uh, took some precautionary measures. I... You know, you think about these things because it becomes troublesome. And I, uh, well, I didn't shave my legs and I didn't shave under my arms. Because you can't pick up a stranger when you're not clean shaven. It just would be sleazy. And uh, I suppose almost other times. So, here we are. Out with a couple of women who are not like me. They have a couple. You know, they're just out here to have a good time, celebrate our friend's marriage. But I'm a complete alcoholic. And I'm out there dancing on the dance floor with this guy. And the next thing I know, I'm flat on my butt on the dance floor looking up at him. He was like a vapor. He was gone. You know, <laughs> I wasn't dancing alone this time. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, okay, I'll just go you know, down to the pool room and mellow out for a little while. And went down there and started harassing some of the guys that were playing pool. And, and then the bar closed. And I hadn't paired off with anybody, and I made it outside the door of the bar, and I am not kidding you, I was patting myself on the back, going, all right, you know, plan A worked. And uh, the next, I must have gone into a blackout, because the next thing you know, I'm standing next to this Yahoo at his truck, and we're going over to his house to finish the party. And my three friends that are with me are coming along, they think we're just going to finish the party. They don't, they've never been out with me before, uh, so they don't know the drill. Um, and we get over to this guy's house, and then they all want to go home. And oh no, thanks, I'm staying. And, and uh, you know, can I uh, 
borrow your razor? <laughs> oh, sure. And uh, so I here I am uh, trying to get a clean shave at 2 in the morning, completely ripped. And I don't know if he, you know, I'm sure he was disappointed. But, uh, you know, you wake up the next day. I'm 30 miles from home. Got to pick up my baby. Gratefully, this guy worked by where I lived and uh, took me home. And, you know, it just kind of starts to dawn on me that that won't even work. So I can't even go into bars anymore. What am I going to do? I'll go to parties with my brother because all of his friends are my friends, and I'll leave them alone, surely, until I go to the next party with my brother and his buddies, and I start hitting on one of them. And, you know, now I can't even do that, so what am I going to do? Well, you know what? I'll just stay home and drink. My best friend lives upstairs, and we'll just get together on Friday nights and have a few beers and watch a little Dallas, a little Falcon Crest, and everything will be great. <laughs> and uh, woohoo, you know, life for the party. And at some point in there, she dried out and came to AA. And I would call her up, and, you know, it's Friday night, and she didn't tell me about it. I'd just call her up and want to come up and have a few. And she'd say, well, you could come up and drink, but I won't be joining you tonight. Okay. Um, so I would go up and try to have a few with her, and that's a lot of fun, you know. <laughs> Drinking alone, you know, with another person in the room. woo <laughs> And so eventually I just stayed home and drank alone. And pretty much I was drinking, you know, by the end, um, Pretty much every night, I would come home from work and uh, get my daughter to bed precisely at 8 o'clock and go out and crack a beer. And, you know, three, three and a half beers later, I'd be passed out in front of the TV. And I would lay in my, on the couch, you know, and I had a little funky couch and chair, kind of a living room set. I had a colored TV and a VCR and a microwave oven and a dining room set that I got for 20 bucks at a garage sale that I still have today. Um, <laughs> it's like a completely alcoholic dining room table. You know, don't lean on it. Um, we won't be eating at that table. We never used to come over for fellowship, and it's like, okay, okay, just take your plate and move away from the table. <laughs> oh, maybe, huh? Anyway, some things are just kind of hard to let go of. And I would, and I had a little S10 pickup truck, you know, out in the parking ramp, and I would, you know, right before you kind of pass out in that little bit of a stupor, thinking, you know, if somebody were to break down the door and see what what really went on here at night, you know, they would be desperately because you're of absolutely no use to that kid. Every night you're completely loaded, and, and what are you going to do? I, uh, and I wish I could tell you that that's what drove me into Alcoholics Anonymous, but it had nothing to do with my drinking. What happened is um, her father that I had left, was, he's an excellent father. He is very active in her life. He lives in St. Paul. She spends every Christmas and every summer over there with him. He's really good about hooking her up with my mother who lives there. He's a really good dad, um, you know, after I badmouthed him all over town, but he has consistently participated with her. And he would bring her home from visitation after I'd maybe had a couple. And, you know, my favorite line, what are you doing right now? And, uh, and, and we would wind up in bed together. And we had done this thing for nine years. And, it, and now I, I recognize enough that I'm dragging this little kid along, and I just really don't want to be doing this. But it seems to me that I can't stop. And a friend of mine, this woman who dried out a little bit before me, said, you know, it seems that you do these things when you're drinking. Maybe if you didn't drink, you wouldn't have to behave this way. And I so desperately wanted to be able to leave that man alone and stay out of that relationship and get on with my life that I was willing to pay for me the ultimate price at that time, which was to stop drinking. And uh, got hooked up with a, a counselor who evaluated me. And, you know, that's another resentment. I, um, <laughs> but I agreed to, to do that. And uh, my last drunk was at, I guess, the 1987 World Series. It was the Twins against 
some other team. <laughs> you think I would know? I, I think it's the Cardinals. I think it was. And uh, I went with my brothers. I have four brothers, and uh, gratefully, a couple of them drink like me. I uh, we meet at one of their houses before, you know, to have a few beers before we head to the pregame keg, and. Uh, and I'm drunk before we leave his house. And they're saying things like, you know, Teresa, slow down. Teresa, take it easy. And we haven't even made it to the party yet. Teresa, Teresa, Teresa. And I'm like, you know, stay out of my face. I'm, I'm an adult and I know exactly what I'm doing. You know, never mind that I have an appointment next Tuesday to be evaluated for alcoholism. <laughs> we'll just keep that little detail under her hat. And I uh, went to the pregame keg and was drinking a Pepsi, trying to mellow out a little bit. That's my other little trick is I drink really fast. I guzzle them up. Big. I just can't get it in me fast enough, and, uh, and I'm that way today. I came up here with two cups of water thinking, I don't know if it's going to be enough. <laughs> I usually pack around about a liter and a half with me. I just drink a lot. I don't know if I'm going to dehydrate or what. But. <laughs> I, uh, so we're at the keg, and then we head on to the ball game, and, and you know, I went into a blackout. This guy, um, I guess, he claims to have handed me $5 and said, you know, the next time the beer man comes by, he want to get me one. Oh, yeah, sure, I guess. He claims I said. And so the beer man came and the beer man left and the guy didn't get any beer. And all of a sudden he's in my face going, you know, basically, where's my money or where's my beer? Now all of my brothers who are in the row with me saw me take this man's money, pocket the money, and I am, you know, in flat-footed denial that I had anything to do with his money. And, you know, well, check your pocket. I will not. And, uh, and I didn't. So, you know, and one of my brothers finally said, forget it, and they just gave him five bucks out of their own pocket. This nice senior citizen couple that was sitting in the row ahead of us, you know, turned around and got all indignant with me how I was just there to drink. I didn't really care about baseball. And, <laughs> okay, well, whatever. You know, you need to believe, lady, because this is like the, the first time the twins have been losers in my whole life, so whatever. And uh, and the game was over, and my brother, one of my brothers took me home, and in the car, I you know, reached in my pocket, and there was a $5 bill. Now, I, I guess I'd had blackouts before, but, you know, never anything quite like that, where you just kind of go, and it's just that sinking feeling of, oh, my God. And uh, so the next Tuesday, I got evaluated. I was recommended to go to outpatient treatment, and I commenced outpatient treatment. Woo-hoo, you know, looking forward to it. Not drinking, not anything, not ever again. Shoot me. I, uh, you know, how am I going to get through my life? How am I going to have dinner with my family? How am I going to watch TV at night? How am I going to be a mother to my kid? How am I going to get laid, go dancing, you know, drive? I don't know. How am I going to do any of these things? I, it just baffled me. And, uh, but, but really, desperately, I wanted to be able to leave that man alone. And if that's what I needed to do, then I was going to do that. I guess about two weeks or so after I got involved in this treatment program, I went over to Wisconsin, Minneapolis, about 30 miles from Wisconsin. My aunt had a place over there. She owned a supper club for most of my life. And it was very conveniently located, and the bars were open until 2 in Wisconsin. So I went over there and drank a lot, and there was a particular farmer that I dated. Um, <laughs> when I was in town. Actually, he's like the one rare one that really we only did date. In, in my home group, uh, Dating is a euphemism for sex. Um, it's just, I'm sure that no other home group is quite that sick, but that's how the women in my group are. And thank God, because when I got to them, then I could identify with what they were talking about. I, um, I guess 
I went on this date with this guy, and, and now I'm not drinking because I'm in treatment. And, but I'm trying to have a normal life, so I'm not staying out of bars or doing anything really different, you know, not diving into AA. I think they required that you go to one meeting a week for the treatment program. I was an overachiever. I went to two. And that's kind of how it worked. And I, um, you know, go into the bar with this guy and have a Pepsi. And uh, I don't know, about halfway through that Pepsi, he kind of looked at me over the table and he You just really aren't very much fun on the Pepsi. You're just not quite what I'm used to being around uh, at all. And I thought, because you really are right, and, but I'm an alcoholic, and what am I going to do? And at that time, the best that I could do was to order up a non-alcoholic beer. And I didn't think it was standard. It seemed perfectly normal. And my head didn't fly off, and I didn't you know, climb over the counter to get some more booze or pound down to get of that stuff that night. So for the next eight months, I can tell you that I hung out in, uh, in bars and keeping it in my house, drinking non-alcoholic beer. And maybe I started out with one that night, but by the end of that eight months, I'm drinking six packs and 12 packs. And, I mean, it's ridiculous. And if you've ever had it, it's absolute swill. I, um, I mean, absolute. It's like, why would you even torture yourself? And I don't know why I never, you know, I want to tell you that I never got drunk off of that stuff, but I'm drinking six packs for crying out loud. We kind of get into this little debate at my house every now and then about how much alcohol really is there in near beer compared to French juice or apple juice. Um, <laughs> I can tell you that I have had apple juice in my life, and I have never ever once had an uncontrollable urge to have more. <laughs> it's like, you know, I have apple juice and I water it down because it's like, you know, but throw me a near beer, baby, and I'll be taking it well back. Um, and I just got weirder and weirder, hanging out around AA meetings, kind of doing my own thing, which really, like I told you, was too many degrees, no home group, no sponsor, no bucket, you know, doing bars, doing near beer and this whole thing, and, and looking around my family and blaming everybody around me for the condition of my life. And I, I was miserable. I, uh, I was absolutely crazy, and I had no idea that I was suffering from untreated alcoholism. And what I did is I packed up my daughter and myself, and I had a job opportunity over in New York City, and, and away we go. And we moved to New York when she was about two years old. And I know that after that time, I didn't drink any more non-alcoholic beer. Something in me said, you know what? You're a long way from home. And if you continue to drink this stuff, something's going to happen. And you are going to find yourself later. And you're just really going to be in So what I did is I just stopped drinking my non-alcoholic beer. Did I go dive head first into alcohol synonymous? I, um, I had a life to handle. I had a job that I was starting and an apartment to settle down. A whole lot of other things going on in AA is just not a priority because, you know what, I'm just not that bad. I'm not a bad alcoholic. No DUIs, no liver problems, no VDs, no, no wrecks, no, you know, all the things that happen to real alcoholics. Uh, we all have our measuring sticks, right? <laughs> you have yours, and I'm sure I would laugh at yours equally as much as you would laugh at mine. But we are all entitled to our very own measuring sticks. Thank you. I, uh, <laughs> that happened to be mine. No DUIs, no VDs. Okay. Free and clear. Not a problem. Always had a job, always paid my bills, you know, except for the couple of times my brother had to bail me out of credit card debt, and that didn't really count because it was drug money that paid that off. So, um, so what am I going to do? Here I am in New York, and it took me probably about a month to get to an AA meeting. I was there after I first got there, and I walked in very desperate, very melodramatic, and I wanted to drink. And, Raised my hand from the back, and I got there late, of course, because I was in the cold back. 
The guy who was trying to meet called me, and my name is Teresa. I'm an alcoholic. And he said, "Do you have a sponsor? Get a sponsor. Boom. Move down to the next person." I thought, "No way to treat a new person." That I got a sponsor. And um, can I tell you that I didn't get really active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I really, and I don't know where I got the idea. Probably, you know, sitting at home alone on the couch in front of the TV, that, that AA was some kind of a free-for-all, some kind of a dynamic, own-your-own program for recovery. You sit in a room with, you know, 50, 60 people, and kind of pick out the things that sound interesting to you, and piece it all together to figure out, what am I going to do next? And, uh, and that's how it went. It went for about two and a half years. And I can tell you that I got weirder and weirder and weirder as the days went by. I, uh, you know, this grew more and more. I was able to go to my job in the morning. And the only thing really that was getting me out of the house at that job was the prospect of staying home with my daughter during the day. I was horrified at being a mother. I had no clue how to do that. I'd been doing it for two years. And uh, they just get me out of the house. And I would pack her off. The little bus would come and pick her up. And I'd get on the subway and go to work and hide out in a book and get to work. And, Maybe I would make it through the whole day at work, but a lot of times I would leave early and uh, go to the theater, go to watch movies, and I got a lot of relief going into movies. I was, you know, just like at the beginning of the movie, you got a big bucket of popcorn in your lap and a giant diet coke and about a two-pound bag of scissors. <laughs> the lights come down, you know, and you just know you got two hours and you don't have to do nothing but watch that. And that was it. And sometimes I was so desperate I would time it right. You know, would I go to a meeting? Oh. Uh, but I could time it right that I could get to maybe two movies that afternoon before the daycare bus would be coming home from daycare. And then we would march up into our apartment and she would go into the bedroom and play alone. And I would go in front of the TV and chain smoke and chain smoke. And that was pretty much what and my diet consisted of double stuff coming in. This and smoke. And uh, I would see her. What did I say? Double something. <laughs> see, like, this whole crew is my home group. They've heard this, and they're like, I'm surprised they're even awake. Uh, hanging on every word. I, uh, double stuffed Oreos. Thank you. Um, you know, I'd put her in front of the TV with some mac and cheese with some wieners cut up in it because I was a good mother and give her protein. And I'd go out in the kitchen and dip my double stuffs and eat them alone because I didn't want to be a bad example. And I would hide Haagen-Dazs ice cream like way in the back of the refrigerator. She was so tiny, I don't know if I was afraid she was going to steal it from me or what was the deal. But, and that just went on and on and on. I could kind of keep up the front during the day. You know, and I got to the place where I guess I was about a year sober and sitting on the couch, chain-smoking, and it just, like a flash, ran through my mind, you know, nothing has changed, Teresa. Your life is exactly the same as it was when you stuck with me. You know, what is the problem? I don't know, you know, that was my man. Okay, you know. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I just, and if you've been where I was at, you know, hanging around AA, all of that time, refusing to participate, there were a couple of guys in, in my home group at that time who were like Sanders Club. They were smiling. They were happy. They would come in. They were talking about the steps and the traditions and sponsorship. You know, they were shaking your hand really hard. You know, those really hard gripper type of people. Um, and you just sit and watch them, talk them, and just see through that and think, you know, what's wrong with them? How can they possibly? I was in the row of people who was thinking, 
There's one guy who like wore his shades all the time and he would say things like, you know, I keep coming back and you tell me it's going to get better, but I've been coming back now for two years and it's not getting better. And I just want to know, basically, what? And uh, that was my role. And uh, I would watch that guy and his sponsor, you know, clean cut and clean shaven and happy, and it was real. You know, it wasn't from the teeth out. And they were always happy to see me. And uh, there was another guy there, Sonny, who was. Sonny was also very, very active, and he always introduced himself as, my name is Sonny, and I'm happy out of And I'm going to tip you out of your chairs, Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> One more time. Holy mackerel. And he would, um, saw him at the International, and he was doing a panel, and now he's like introducing himself as a happy, happy out <laughs> But you know what? Today I'm in a much different uh, place. Today I am in you know, a lot of the time, I, uh, and that's uh, at some point in my sponsor, the poor woman just didn't want it anymore with the beauty. I uh, had started breaking out in acne, red, huge, I mean, not just like a simple hair or pimple hair, it was my entire face broke out in these huge welts, and, uh, you know, we couldn't figure it out, and she whipped out her new page, here's her healing book, and uh, looked up acne, I guess there's a chapter on acne. Uh, well, isn't that it was symptom of Sanders syndrome was, and I thought, that is the stupidest thing I ever, ever heard. <laughs> Must be joking. And, uh, cause, and I had a lot of anger being directed outward, let me tell you what I was doing. Coming <laughs> uh, unglued, I, was, I would uh, punch my refrigerator. I would have these fantasies that if I could just nail it really hard, just right, just the right angle, that all of the rage would fly out of my body and I would be free. I was um, going to a counselor. She packed me off the counselor. She really, God bless her, didn't have a remote clue what to do with me. And when I just got, because she wasn't getting weirder. She was doing what she was doing with AA. And she seemed to be doing all right with that. But I tried to follow that example, and I was whacked out. I was nuts. And she was like, well, you are beyond me. I don't know what to do with you. And packed me off to a counselor. You had me stacking up all the sofa cushions in her little apartment and whacking on them with a tennis racket. Until that room was filled with dust. <laughs> and I would just be a sweaty, unbelievable mess one more time. And, uh, oh man, I felt, you know, exhausted, feeling pretty good. And then, um, go back out, the hour would be up, and my feet would hit the street, I'd be two blocks on the way back to work, and it would all just come crashing back down on me, and I would be livid all over again. And the counselor finally didn't know what to do with me, packed me off to an herbal doctor in Chinatown, who had me drinking this bizarre tea concoction of Beetle hulls and uh, licorice twigs and God knows what. It tasted like absolute crap. Uh, had to be like room temperature and plug my nose and pound it down really fast to get it down. I drank that stuff twice a day for about eight months. The herbal doctor thought my problem was I was constipated. <laughs> I mean, people just didn't know what to do with me. They just, they tried. You know, everyone gave it their best effort. My dad always told me I was full of it, but you know, it just didn't really go to that level. Um, I just was whacked out, and at one point in there, I guess I was about a year, a year and a half dry, and I um, was taking my daughter to the supermarket one morning, and had a little cart, he didn't have a car while we were there, and, you know, then something, I guess, behind me, I looked around, there was a guy coming, he was pretty clean cut, I didn't feel like he was any kind of a threatening presence, and turned around and kept walking, and all of a sudden I had his arm around my throat, and it was about half a block away from my apartment, lived in a pretty, you know, nice little neighborhood in New York, and, uh, in my ears, 
you know how your mind works, and it's like Danger Will Robinson, you know, and I'm going through the litany of bad cop shows I have ever seen in my life. And the next thing I know, I'm down on the ground, and and uh, I said I don't have any money. I have a stupid mother. He said, you know, basically it's New York. Don't take that. You're going to the grocery store. Give me your money. And I said, well, you know what? It's inside my jacket. I had a leather coat on with an inside pocket. I said, and it's this, you know, I'm on. You don't let me up, and I'm not going to have very much help getting through homeless. So he let me up, very cool he was. And the minute that my feet hit the concrete, I came unglued all over that man. Um, you, know, you monster! <laughs> I mean, just like absolutely ballistic all over him. And every time I opened my mouth, I took one step back. <laughs> and I wish I could tell you I was exaggerating. His eyebrows would shoot up a little bit, you know, and somebody in a car kind of pulled up and saw us there and, whoa, 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 you know, going nuts and, hey, leave her alone. And the cops came. They thought it was a domestic dispute. They thought that. <laughs> they thought we knew each other intimately. Because um, I was just, you know, I mean, this is what I'm like without alcohol. You know? Our alcoholics anonymous a year and a half, just out there scrounging around doing my very best. And it's not like I wasn't busy. I was doing things, the things that I described. But they were not the solution for me. I, um, and I wonder if that guy ever mugged anyone ever again. <laughs> fun to catch up with him and give him a little quiz. I, um, I guess about a year or so after that, I, I moved out to Montana. I had to get out of the city. I was not having very much success in relationships. Really anything um, I had a very good job with people who really liked the work that I did you know, when I was working. Um, but I just had to get out of the city. And I had a little girl who was getting ready to start school, and I really didn't want to go stay here in the city. And they paid me a lot of money to move out here from Minneapolis, which I bankrolled some of it. So we found our way to Helena. The woman gave me a job, and I to Helena about two weeks after I got there, I um, walked into it's in the bushes, which is my home here today. And, uh, yeah, right on. They, uh, I mean, I just can't tell you how my life has changed as a result of my participation with these people. And it didn't start out, you know, on a virtuous note. I, um, I got there, I was in such bad shape, and I didn't even know it. Um, I needed a drink, is what I needed really bad, or I needed to get my butt busy. And I wasn't looking to be a joiner, I wasn't looking to be active, I wasn't looking to be happy and joyous and enthusiastic about AA. Okay, because I have a life <laughs> at home alone in front of cable TV <laughs> with an extensive video collection and, um, you know, a little two-year-old girl. But the meeting happened to be close to where I worked, and it was a new meeting, and I'm a single mother, so I would be responsible, I thought. And here I walk into this little nest of people who are very, very serious about alcoholism and alcoholism anonymous. And uh, there was a man in that meeting that I happened to find extremely attractive. Um, attractive enough to keep me coming back. And uh, the women pass around a meeting card like we do and gave me a bunch of phone numbers. And what I started to do with that list is call all those women and say, you know, I have a crush on uh, Alex. And they, but I don't know anything about having a healthy relationship. And they would all, I'm not kidding you, every single one of them would burst into laughter and say, oh, well, we don't know anything about having a healthy relationship either. <laughs> But we know Alex, and he's a really nice guy. And uh, and then I got to the woman who was my sponsor today, and I said, you know, I have a question on Alex. I didn't, like, stop at one person. I kept 
going, because I'm a big fat opinion caller is what I am when I found my way to that group, and I'm going to find someone. You know, when I was doing the married guy thing in New York, I went around to a host of women and said, I met this guy. And they all said, but he's married to somebody else. And I said, well, I don't want to, like, break up his family or anything. We're just, yeah. And uh, they'd say, you know, I've never seen anyone ever come out of these things where somebody didn't get hurt or where everybody didn't get hurt. But I found one woman in that host of women who said, oh, I'm so happy you found someone else. Bingo, baby. And I was, you know, like snot on a sleeve for about the next year and a half. But here I am in Helena with women who honestly don't know how to have a healthy relationship. And I got to this woman and I said, you know, I have a crush on Alice. And she said, well, you know, very droll. Get in line. I thought, you know how your mind just goes, there's a line? You know, like, okay, I better get on it. Um, hustle up to the front. And, uh, and she said, and, and I know Alex. And she said, and I know that he won't be interested in somebody who's not working his best. Okay. I could work some steps, I suppose. So I uh, got myself a sponsor who, uh, who happened to be sharing with us who lives here in Billings today. And when I asked her to be my sponsor, she said, you know what, I'm, I'm moving to Billings in about three months uh, for my job. And, you know, are you sure this is something that you want to do? And, and I, at that point in my life, I had about four different sponsors. The sponsors were a dime a dozen. You know, what? Yeah, not a problem. And we started meeting, and she started taking me through our book, page by page, word by word, you know, in her kitchen once a week. And at some point, I think the chapter she had not said, she escalated to twice a week. And so it's just like rocked the foundation of my life, the chapter she had not um, So she started taking me through the book and teaching me what is alcoholism. Why is it that when you drink, Teresa, all you want to do is drink more? Why is it that you will do anything to get your hands on alcohol? And why is it that when you stop drinking, you're weirder than you are when you're drinking? You know what? And we, it just explained an awful lot about what had been going on in my life, you know, up until I took a drink, up until I stopped drinking, and all the time that I'd been dabbling around in AA until I found my way to people. And I started to recover. I was so happy to be. And about three months into that thing, Sharon was moving to Billings, and what had happened to me is my life changed so dramatically from just that short period of time. And it's not like I, you know, woke up and got over it and got better overnight. I was a basket case. We would do things. We would, um, um, and he just, you know, he was very active. As a result, I was very active. I uh, followed him to every ungodly service commitment he had. I was going over to the women's prison with these women. We were going to Warm Springs. We were um, oh, corrections committee, PICPC committee, and I was just going and going and going and getting out of myself and stamping our hotline number on literature and telling literature and taking pamphlets and meeting cards around to the racks and the doctor's offices and just you know, getting out of myself for the first time ever. And it was, uh, I just can't even tell you. But uh, I was, I was weird. And I was so afraid. My life had changed so much. And I had some hope and direction here finally for the first time. And the prospect of not having a sponsor that lived in the town where I lived, who would see me, who I was accountable to, horrified me. Just because of how much my life had changed in that reporter, and I knew how much of a recluse I was, that if I wasn't accountable to somebody, it was going to be a bad deal. And at that point, I switched sponsors, and I had a sponsor that I had today. And we continued to work through the book and making amends and you know, doing things, and Alex and I um, eventually got together. Um, and today we are married. We've been together for eight and a half years. We've been married for a little bit over five years. Um, 
you know, I just can't tell you about it's my life. I, uh, I sleep in a bed most nights, not in front of the TV. I uh, am comfortable on this planet without alcohol and without drugs. I am faithful and monogamous with this man. I've lived in hell and hell since February of 1991. He's the only reason I've taken to bed. I mean, like, that whole town should just be so thankful. <laughs>
Okay? Nothing. They all know that. Okay. And I'm going to miss out if I'm like not there for it. Kind of like the Boeing on parking lot trip. And you know what? I'm not depressed. I recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I am a functioning member of the human race. I am someone who needs desperately alcohol and other drugs, but it seems to be doing okay without it. Okay? As long as I'm busy doing the 12 steps of alcoholics anonymous and participating in my home group and reaching out to newcomers and, you know, showing up with my sponsor and doing a lot of the other actions that I've been taught to take by these people. And my life is, is uh, pretty unbelievable today. I still have an alcoholic mind and I am and convinced today that I'm always going to have it. I uh, went to the doctor a few years ago, I guess, and had an ingrown toenail. I mean, weird things happen to me. Not that an ingrown toenail is a weird thing, but I... Um, the guy numbed up my toe. I didn't feel my toe for like three days after. And it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience, you know. Wouldn't recommend it to anybody. There's, you know, things to do, you know, on Thursday in Helena. Um, but I walked out of that guy's office, and the first thing that my mind said to me was, you know what, Teresa, you have nine more toes. <laughs> I thought, you know, when you think things like that, you get a little embarrassed for yourself. <laughs> God, that's so desperate, you know. And I went home and called my sponsor and told her what was going on. And she said, you know, you probably got an effect off the local anesthetic. Just, you know, get on your knees and pray and ask for God's help to do what you need to do to stay sober and you'll get through it. And I have not had to, you know, go back for one toe surgery <laughs> since. Quite a deal. But things like that happen to me, you know, where I'm in the thick of, of AA and my head crops up with something weird like that. I was... Um, Going anyway, before we got married, I went to try on my wedding dress and went into the supermarket next door to the bridal joint and get a gallon of milk to take home and turned around and with a gallon of milk in my hand and there's a wall full of wine bottles. You know, you guys, we don't sell liquor in Minnesota in the grocery store, right? but there's a special store for alcohol. Special. But you turn around here and it's like right in the dairy aisle, crying out loud. And, and my head says, through the milk. You know, I'm like terrified. I don't know how to be monogamous. I don't know how to be married. There's one surefire way that I know out of this deal. Screw the milk. Get a big fat bottle of that stuff and head out to the parking lot. Parking lot. Seems to be a thing. Um, and just drink it. Don't go home. You'll have to share it with him. It'll be a problem. You know, it just won't be enough to go around. And, you know, I'd been in an AA meeting that morning. I'd been doing what I needed to be doing. I just clutched the milk and got out of the store and went home to my family and got through it. Didn't have to drink. But more and more, I'm just convinced that I'm going to have this kind of thinking. And that's why I need to be as active as I need to be. And if you're new, okay, and you're suffering from the disease that I suffer, I mean, it is a bad deal. It is not fun. The prospect of life without anything is horrifying. It is to me today. You know, how can I possibly? It's just 11 and a half years is too long for anyone to have to go without a drink. And I haven't had anything since May 24, 1988. And it's not because I'm special or wonderful or a light case, you know, as you probably all understand now. Uh, I am a basket case, you know, in and of myself, without you and without this program. But if I'm here with you, I have a prayer. And I have a huge chance, and I don't ever have to drink it. It is possible to be comfortable without alcohol and without drugs, but I'm going to have to do something. And it's more than just sitting in a chair. It's more than just hanging out in some meetings and just not drinking, you know. But if I will truly just dive into the middle and latch onto the people that are laughing and joking and having a good time, then I'll find what they, I mean, it's just, I can't tell you. This room is full of people that I know. I am a loner. I mean, I just, 
bizarre. I can't tell you. And uh, what a huge gift. I am, um, you know, I don't know. I just want to like gush and gush and gush about AA. It's a fabulous and wonderful thing. But if you stick around this weekend, I will be demonstrating to you over and over and over again. The people here in the meetings and the workshops and, and the greeters and the people at the registration and the people, you know, stocking up cookies and mixed coffee and all that kind of stuff. So I just want to thank you. I really am so privileged and so grateful to be invited to participate. And, um, Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.